Well, around the age of 12, my dad introduced me to backpacking, and he was interested to see if camping, backpacking, and ultimately Boy Scouts might be something that we'd enjoy doing together. So we planned this trip to hike for three days and three nights in Smoky Mountain National Park. And as you might know, Smoky Mountains are filled with black bears, so every campsite has a shelter that includes a bunk bed type structure, a fireplace, and a chain link fence that covers the front of the shelter. And our first night, we stayed at one of the most famous shelters in the park, Mount LeConte. It was a great start. I was really looking forward to the third day when we would arrive at a geological formation called the Chimneys. We turn into the second day and we're hiking along the trail. In the afternoon, we come to our campsite for the night. It was a shelter that was only about a mile from the main road. It was the halfway point between LeConte and the chimneys. And because it was so close to the road, it often attracted locals who would come up, have a good time, and trash the campsite. So we come down this hill, we turn into the shelter, only to find it filled with trash, food, cans, clothes. So we collect the trash, we take it outside, put it in a pile, and we begin burning it, walk back into the shelter. After a few minutes, we hear rustling coming from the underbrush that surrounded the campsite. And a few seconds later, a black bear emerges from the brush and approaches the fire that had just begun. And it became obvious that the trash commonly left behind was a food source for what we realized was a mama bear and her cubs who were just beyond view. And this bear comes over to the fire and she takes her front paw and snuffs out the fire. This is like real life, genuine article, Smokey the Bear. And she begins to sort through the trash, making preparations for dinner. And the whole time, my dad and I are just stunned. We're completely frozen behind this chain link fence. We can't believe it. And after the mother left, we realized that there was no way we were gonna stay the night at this campsite. So we left, hiked back down the trail to the road, hitchhiked back to our car. And still to this day, I've never seen the chimneys. We've all been in these kinds of fight, flight, or freeze situations. And as we continue in our series, The Coming of the Kingdom, in the book of 1 Samuel, we turn into chapter 4 and we find Israel in just such a situation. As you might remember, Israel had been delivered by God in the Exodus, settled into the promised land under Joshua, but both life and faith were tenuous. This was the age of the judges, which were temporary rulers who God raised up every time Israel was in trouble. When 1 Samuel opened, scholars believe that Samson was the judge ruling over Israel at the time. And we know from that story that Samson's weakness was women. In particular, a woman named Delilah, who was a Philistine. And Philistines, they were the enemies of Israel. And we know in that story that Samson is captured by the Philistines. He was blinded. He was chained to a pillar in one of their temples dedicated to the god Dagon. And we all know how it ends. Samson repents unto God. His strength is renewed by the power of the Spirit, and he brings the house down literally. The Philistines were originally a group of seafaring people who settled along the coast in what is actually coincidentally today the Gaza Strip. 
They had a distinct culture, including their own language and art, and they were technologically advanced. Having the ability to forge iron comes in handy when you're waging war against other communities. We know from the stories from Samson all the way to King David, the Philistines were the arch enemy of Israel, the thorn in their sod, their greatest rival in the region. And so chapter four opens with a battle scene. It sounds kind of epic. The Philistines mustered for war against Israel. It's kind of like facing that bear. Israel was faced with a decision. Do they freeze? Do they fight? Or do they flee? So we're going to follow the battle as we find it in chapter four in three phases. First, the battle that was fought. Second, the battle that was lost. And third, the war that was won. The battle that was fought, the battle that was lost, and the war that was won. I begin with the battle that was fought, and we find it in these opening verses one through three. Israel went out to battle against them. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle was joined, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. When the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord put us to rout today before the Philistines? So here we have day one of the battle. In this first skirmish, Israel loses 4,000 men. And most of these troops have no idea of the corruption that exists with Eli and his sons at the temple. All they know is that they are Israel. They are the people of the Exodus. They are the people of Yahweh. And they remember the Exodus. And we find out in verse 8, the Philistines are familiar with God's renown as well. So it was probably only natural to ask when they lost, why didn't God show up for us? And I know that we've all asked that question. And maybe we're asking that question right now in our career, in our marriage, with our children, plans that we've made, someone that we're dating, a situation at school, conflict with a friend or neighbor, our journey in the church. The list could go on and on because life is chalked full of battles and battles lost. Why didn't God show up? Part of the question for Israel and for us is when we lose in life, where do we turn? And I'm not about to give sweet platitudes because losing battles in life is real. It's as real as it gets. And there are so many ways, as I just suggested, that we lose on a personal front. But it's also true in culture and the church, in our city. My kids sat at home all week long because they're public school students. We lost this week. And figuring out a way forward between these competing parties seems extremely complex. In our nation, our political system is broken. Just this week, I saw a side-by-side comparison of political debates dating back to Kennedy versus Nixon all the way into our current era. In the decades past, the debates were respectful. Today, they're all-out brawls. In the church, we've covered the data in months past from Barna to Pew that show a, a decline 
in the church here in America, a powerlessness that we feel in the church. When we lose, where do we turn? Well, Israel, when they lost, they froze in the face of threat. They didn't quite know what to do with this loss of power. So someone in command comes up with a great idea. Let's weaponize God. Bring in the lucky charm. Somebody go get the ark. And this is nothing short of Indiana Jones' Raiders of the Lost Ark. Remember that, that film? The Nazis are trying to recover the ark because in the words of character Marcus Brody, an army which carries the ark before it is invincible. So they send a garrison to Shiloh. And with the implied permission of Eli and his sons, they snatch the ark out of the Holy of Holies and they bring it to the battlefield. And as the ark makes its way into the camp, the Israelites, they shout, they're excited. They've brought God into the battle. Hashtag winning. And then we find the Philistines response. They've heard all about this God, the God of the Exodus. They're struck with fear, but nonetheless, they strap up for battle once again with a rousing speech. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, in order not to become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And so we come to day two of the battle. And here on day two of the battle, we find that the battle that was fought is the battle that was lost. We pick up in verse 10. So the Philistines fought. Israel was defeated and they fled, everyone to his home. There was a very great slaughter for there fell of Israel, 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Notice who was completely absent from the narrative of chapter four. It's Samuel, nowhere to be found. After all this buildup around Samuel in chapter one through three, Samuel, in those chapters, became the central figure. He was involved in all of Israel's decision-making. We remember from last week, Samuel went from the boy in a white linen robe to the most trustworthy prophet priest in all of Israel. And it said of him that the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. If anyone in Israel ever doubted that they could hear from the Lord on any issue, their neighbor would say, no, 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 my friend, remember, we have Samuel. And yet here in chapter four, Samuel is nowhere to be found because he wasn't consulted. Israel didn't want to consult God. They wanted to use God. And as a result, they lost not only the battle, but they lost their way with God himself. C.S. Lewis, in The Weight of Glory, says, like a good chess player, Satan is always trying to maneuver you into a position where you can save your castle only by losing your bishop. Consider a battle that you're facing right now. You know, for Israel and for us, it's really a matter of relationship. Are we going about our plans and then asking God to anoint our decisions, or are we seeking the Lord and asking to be led by him? The difference is subtle, but profound. It's a difference of lordship. 
Are you seeking to follow him or are you really asking him to follow you? And here's the trap. If we're honest, oftentimes we act as Lord of our life. We figure things out. We develop plans. We make decisions without coming before the Lord. And as a result, we feel this immense pressure. We're driving this thing. Sometimes we feel that our identity is on the line. And lo and behold, things don't work out. And then we ask, why didn't God show up? And maybe that's because we never asked him to be involved in the first place. One scholar calls this power religion. The ark becomes a power box. You know, Israel was thinking to themselves, we'll just trot this thing out and employ God to our ends. And maybe the Israelites were a bit confused because there were other battles in Israel's history where they did take the ark into war, but only under God's direction. And here's what's interesting. I cannot think of one single passage in all of the Bible where the people of God were defeated when they sought the Lord. Victory has many faces. After consulting the Lord, sometimes God told Israel to fight because he would be with them. Sometimes he told them to freeze, to wait, because, for example, he would send an angelic host before them. Sometimes he told them to flee, as was the case in the Exodus. But under no conditions did Israel ever lose in a substantial way when they sought the Lord. So imagine, as we look here at Israel in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, how different things could have been if Israel, if the troops came to Samuel and simply asked, Lord, what would you have for us? Finally, we come to the war that was won. We find out in verse 13 that Eli, the high priest, had been waiting by the road for a word from battle. And a messenger comes there to Shiloh, like the messenger from the battle of Marathon, exhausted, dust on his head. He reports that the battle had been lost, Eli's sons had died, and the ark had been captured by the Philistines. Now, recollect that that Eli allowed the armies of Israel to snatch and grab the ark from the temple. He knew this was desecration. And so the text says that Eli's heart trembled before the Lord. And we find when Eli heard about the defeat and when he even heard about the loss of his sons, in a sense, it had no effect. But when he was told that the ark had been captured, he fell over backwards and died. And presumably around that same time, his daughter-in-law gives birth to Eli's grandson. And the text says that she named the child Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. You see here that the judgment that fell upon Israel was a judgment, or fell upon Eli, was a judgment experienced by all of Israel. But it's here in these final verses of chapter 4 that we discover a grand reversal. And it's seen in the Hebrew wordplay going on here. The Hebrew words for heavy and for glory are nearly identical. 
Eli has become overweight from eating the offerings in an unholy way in the temple, and his own heaviness carries him to his death. But the glory of the ark also has a heaviness to it. It's the heaviness of God's holiness. And the daughter-in-law says that, that the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. And that word for departed means exile. And there's something here that the daughter-in-law couldn't understand in the final moments of her life. God allowed his glory to be taken into exile for the sake of Israel. Here in what seems like a dark, dismal, dire moment, Eli and his sons have now once and for all been purged from the temple. Israel as a people have been humbled and now they are in a position to seek the lordship of Yahweh. The ark is heavy, heavy with God's holiness. This is like capturing a bear and thinking you can make it a household pet and not to give away the story in the coming chapters, but just so you know, God's going to be just fine because he's God. It's here that he wants us to see the great lengths of his love. Israel's lordship led them to chaos, manipulation, despondency, and great suffering. But in the end, it's not Israel, but it's God himself who pays the price. God's glory goes into exile, captured by the enemy. And this points us directly to what God would do for us in the person of Jesus in the cross. Jesus allowed his glory to be carried away into the exile of sin and death, captured by that enemy. It's not us, but it's Jesus who pays the price for all the times we've chosen to rule our life our own way. All those times that have resulted in chaos, manipulation, and great suffering. What God ultimately wants us to see here is that Jesus is our Ichabod. His was the glory that departed so that our glory could be renewed. And here is the good news. Sin and death could not hold the weight of his holiness. You see, the glory of Israel never truly departed because God will always make good on his promises by his power. Here at the end of chapter four, it's an invitation to faith. Lord, what would you have for us? Luke Cresswell sent me a great story this week of Don Graves, who was a corporal in the United States Marine Corps stationed on the island of Iwo Jima during World War II. There's a moment on that island that he never forgets that he thinks about all the time. He was there in a foxhole, snipers firing all around him, especially at night. He was on the lookout for enemy fire. He gets a call. Command is sending a new kid to the regiment. And Graves thinks to himself, great, we need the help. And the kid arrives. He's eager. He's earnest. He asks what to do. And Graves says, just sit there. You just got here. But the, kids, the kid is eager. He wants, to, he wants to be on lookout. Graves eventually hands him the glasses. 
and they're there just shooting the breeze. And all of a sudden, they hear a thud. The kid falls backward, and his helmet lands upside down at Graves' feet. Don Graves is instantly thinking, man, that could have been me. I was, I was right there. And then he looks down into the helmet that fell between his feet, and he sees a photo of a young woman with a baby. He eventually buries his face in the sand and prays a prayer. God, get me off this island and I will serve you with the rest of my life. Several weeks later, he does in fact get off the island, but he forgets about his prayer. And nine years later, God moves into his life. And Graves recounts, I forgot about my promise I treated God like a rabbit's foot, a lucky charm, but God became real to him, ultimately through his surrender. Graves would comment that he lived a lot of life without God, but he really started living life when he surrendered to God. And after God came calling, Graves spent the next 32 years in ministry. I want to leave you with a prayer this morning that I invite you to pray amidst the battle. Lord, what would you have for me? Lord, what would you have for me? This is not a magic spell. It's nothing that we need to print on blankets and sell at Christian bookstores. It's simply a prayer of surrender. It's an acknowledgement that he is God and you are not. He has prepared good works in advance for you to do because sometimes we can't see our way through the night. And whether it's something you're facing in your career, a financial matter, a relational issue, a fork in the road, maybe even a simple choice about the day. Something amazing happens when you pray a prayer like this. It's a role reversal. It's a conscious acknowledgement that Christ is Lord. We are not. We acknowledge both his and our rightful place. And when that happens, you will find something interesting occur in your heart. It's mysterious. You'll find your heart finally at rest. No longer are you anxious, fretful, busy trying to put the puzzle together. Instead, you realize the weight of the matter. And you realize the weight of the matter can only be matched by the weight of God and his holiness. Father, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to figure this out. I need your leadership. And this is a different sort of posture than using God as our genie, our rabbit's foot, or our lucky charm. No longer are we weaponizing God for our own ends. And sometimes, as we come to him and we consult Jesus with the affairs of life, sometimes he will call us to fight because he will be with us in the battle. Sometimes he will call us to freeze. He wants us to wait because unbeknownst to us, he's working behind the scenes. And sometimes he'll call us to flee, that he wants us to exit our current situation. There's something else that he's leading us toward. Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter seven, ask and it will be given you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds, and for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for bread, will give a stone, or if the child asks for a fish, will give a snake? 
If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I remember reflecting on that passage in college and thinking to myself, you know, there are so many decisions in life that I don't even know what to ask for. Sometimes I think that something's going to be fish or bread, and in reality, it's a stone or a scorpion. But what Jesus tells us is that our Heavenly Father wants only bread and fish and open doors for us and nothing else. Remember, Israel never lost when they sought the word of the Lord. The battle that was fought was the battle that was lost, but in God's grace, the war was won. Let me pray. O God, whose blessed Son came into the world that he might destroy the works of the devil and make us children of God and heirs of eternal life, grant that having this hope, we may purify ourselves as he is pure. And when he comes again with power and great glory, we may be made like him in his eternal and glorious kingdom where he lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever.